Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Picking up in Matthew 3 where we left off. I can't wait to get to this. <laughs> so I feel like we should be doing this at Christmas time, but it's still pretty amazing, even not at Christmas time. It gets us ready for Christmas. And we got the snow and we got some things going already. So, uh, so far in Matthew chapters 1 and 2, there's been a, a boatload of prophecies fulfilled. <clears throat> Matthew's coming at it from the approach of Jesus is king, his kingly line. Uh, this reviews all for you. And then we got to the virgin birth, which fulfills more prophecies. He's born a king in Bethlehem, which fulfills more prophecies. He comes out of Egypt, which fulfills even more. But he's known as a Nazarite because that's where they settle and he spends his formative years. Uh, Nazarite being the word branch, um, and which fulfills uh, uh, even more prophecies um, where he's referred to as the branch. He's both a man of sorrow and a son of the God's right hand. Uh, he's honored by foreign dignitaries, or what we call wise men, like a king would be. Uh, Matthew has, in the first two chapters, made a very compelling argument that Jesus is the king. He's the Messiah. Um, but that's just the beginning. There's more. Um, this is, uh, some people argue Matthew chapter 3 is where the Old Testament actually ends. It is the end of the age of the prophets, because John the Baptist fulfills his last prophetic duty and the prophets point towards Jesus. So when Jesus comes and he's baptized, this is an epic biblical moment, and Matthew sets it up that way. Uh, and he, he skips over most of Jesus' childhood and early life. Uh, Jesus is roughly 30 years old at this point, and he's going to start his ministry, which means Jesus hung out for 30 years. The God of the universe hung out for 30 years before he really started into a ministry that was outreaching. And that's not to say Jesus didn't have a ministry with his family, his parents, everyone in his community. And even John the Baptist, his cousin, knew him and honored him as Lord the second he meets him. So for 30 years, Jesus has had some impact on these people around him, as we're going to see tonight. Um, Luke 16.16 argues, The law and the prophets were until John. And since that time, the kingdom of God is preached and every man is pressed into it, Luke 16, 16. So Luke even argues that Matthew chapter 3 is kind of the end of the law and the prophets. So it's a huge hinge chapter and turning point. And it starts off, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Uh, so we get to meet John the Baptist. Uh, he is not Baptist by denominational. The denomination came later. Baptist is just the title he gives because his, his mission or ministry was to convince people to repent and get baptized. And they did that. And then he pointed him towards Jesus. So he's the son of Zacharias and Elizabeth. Um, who were both too old for children, a lot like Abraham and Sarah were. Um, it says, in those days, Matthew doesn't nail it down by a date. 
Uh, it's a historical phrase that gets used in texts of this time. Basically means time has passed. So after a season or after a time. The wilderness of Judea is dry and arid and hot, but throughout it there are things called wadis, or these little trenches dug out by water rushes where you can get shade. And in those shady areas there are plants and you will find things like bees that make honey and locusts and whatnot. So you can eat and live out in this wilderness. It's not the same as the Sahara Desert. Um, and so we have our context, and then Matthew drops the next couple sentences. Uh, we get John's ministry in one sentence. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, a hardcore message. Repent is metaneio uh, in the Greek. Uh, it means to change your mind or to think differently. It's a present active infinitive. Uh, so it is something that is the compound of two roots. Uh, one is to understand, perceive, or think. And then to, do, to understand, perceive, or think. And the second root is with, after, or among. So you hear something, you understand it, and then you think like that thing you've heard. You repent towards or start to think along with the people you've heard. So... Nothing about the word repent is a feeling or an emotional reaction to stuff. And a lot of times in the church we have an emotional reaction to something that happens, and that's not necessarily the same thing as repenting. Repenting is to understand something deeply, and then active, present active, infinitive, is to act accordingly to what you just learned or thought. So you hear something that is compelling, and you change your mind. Uh, this is the same word that... Um, uh, that, that's what when Jonah reminded the people of Nineveh to repent, right? And Matthew even uses this in Matthew twelve forty one. It is they heard what Jonah was saying, they understood it, and then they changed their actions because of it, and they started to live a different kind of life. So we're supposed to think about the kingdom of heaven, understand what it is, and then turn accordingly. So this is the first use of the word repent uh, in the Bible. It doesn't actually get used back in Jonah. Uh, it's the first word that John says in Matthew 4.17. It's the first word that Jesus says uh, in Peter Acts 22.38 and 3.19. It is the ministry of Peter with the church of Acts. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So John, Jesus, Peter, all of them, this is their message, is that you need to understand what the kingdom of God is and then act accordingly. And you need to change your turn or change. So it's not an easy message. It's definitely not a seeker-friendly message because the first thing at the door is change everything you believe to align with the kingdom of God. And this is what's kind of concerning to me is when we see group after group after group think we don't really want to hit people with that hard punch on the nose kind of thing when they walk in the door. Yet that is the message of John the Baptist and Jesus and Peter and the disciples is that we see an, an instant message of you need to change. And that is a message of love. Because if the path that you're on is destructive, the message of love is you need to get off that path and you need to be on a different one. Uh, so if we see something and actually believe that it's wicked and we understand that, then we act accordingly and we, we preach against that wickedness towards something that's holy or good. Uh, and it's not just a part of God's message, it's the message for John the Baptist. Like, it's the whole message. Um, and sometimes we think there's different elements, but, but that's it. The reason why is given in the line too, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why do we turn away from wicked things? Because God has a kingdom that's better. And I think that's 
at least for me, when I talk to people that are on the edge or considering faith, this is one of the discussions is that we're not just saying walk away from those evil things. We're saying walk towards these good things. And the invitation to come into a different kind of community, a different kind of lifestyle, a different kind of heart should actually be more appealing in some ways because sin has its own kind of appeal too. So when we repent, it's out of a full understanding that we're turning towards something that we actually prefer too. Uh, that said, anytime people change, change hurts because you have, it's called cognitive dissonance. Your whole brain resists change. Humans are creatures of habit. We live in the rut and we stay in the rut unless we actively try to get ourselves out of the rut. And I'm as guilty of that as anybody. When we change and change hurts, change implies we do something different. The core message of the gospel and of John the Baptist is repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's asking us to do something that kind of hurts and is something that changes who we are and how we do things. It's also an emphatic. There should be an exclamation point there. In the Greek, they just put that right into the, the wording. Uh, that it's close at hand is the emphatic part, I think. Um, it's right here. Uh, and for the John the Baptist, he knows that because he grew up around Jesus. Um, the kingdom of heaven is a collection of people under a king. That's the definition of a kingdom. So when we think of the kingdom of heaven as at hand, and we're sitting here to study the word on a Sunday morning, this is the kingdom of heaven. And that, it doesn't come with spotlights necessarily or twinkly stars or unicorns or anything like that, but it does come with the peace of knowing you're around people that love you and you have grace with them. And that we don't have to live according to what the world tells us to live like. We can live according to what the Word of God says. Um, so we look around and we look at the power of a simple power of fellowship. Um, just a few of those powerful elements. There's love. There's the Word of God. There's, for me at least, that there's food, and that's something that's wonderful too. Um, there's fellowship, just hanging around and talking with people, getting to know people. These are the things we offer people as opposed to sin. We offer them the study of the Word of God. We offer them fellowship. We offer them love. Uh, grace. When you come into the church, there's no titles. There's no shame. We don't look at people and worry about how they're dressed or where they come from or what job they have. Uh, the Bible's clear. We don't show partiality to people based on how wealthy or, or prominent they are. We don't do that. We're just brothers and sisters in the faith in the church. So there's grace. There's an acceptance of people that aren't quite where we're at in the faith. Uh, one of the pastors at the conference this week said, all I know is that I am the most well-adjusted, well-balanced Christian that I'm aware of. Is that how he said it? I know I'm the most perfect Christian that I know because everybody else is either too radical and zealous for me or they're backslidden and too far behind me. But, but I'm in just the right place. And the message was grace, that the kingdom of heaven is about a place where we welcome people that are brand new in their faith and they're still wrestling with things or we welcome people that are way ahead of us and we, we regard and learn from them and we gain wisdom in that fellowship. And it's beautiful. The trick is as mature believers to, I think, continue to have that grace even with people that are still working out some sin in their life in the church. Um, and I always go back to the story of how there was somebody at our church that struggled with smoking and she got pounced on by like three people. You got to quit smoking. Uh, no, she needs to find the Lord Jesus Christ because if she could go all the way to her deathbed as a smoker and still find Christ and go to heaven, 
Or she could work on not smoking and then deal with the judgment of the people of God and fall away from Christ in doing it and be a non-smoker and still go to hell. And then she'll smoke, right? So there's a purpose to what we do and how we do it. And grace is a huge part of that. Prayer is one of the things we offer. I don't know. I got, I geeked out on this a little bit. Like what else we have to offer? The power of prayer is absolutely amazing. It's why we do it on Sunday nights. We pray for things and God in his grace and mercy shows us answers to those prayers as though he wants a relationship with us where we talk to him and we listen to him and we pray. I think in the flesh, when we say the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the flesh thinks there's freedom in doing whatever you want to do. I'm just going to do whatever I want to do and that's a kind of freedom. But that kind of freedom actually leads towards condemnation, sin, and death. It's not real freedom. And in fact, if you're trying to do whatever you want to do, it usually is exactly what the world tells you you should be doing. One of the new Barnapoles that just came out shows that 30% of millennials identify with LGBTQ now, a number that is unprecedented in the United States. Because the media and the TV say it's cool, so kids start to do what they think are told is cool, and there's a kind of prison in that, and they're, they're condemned in there. Uh, the world keeps saying everything's got to be bigger, better, huger, more wonderfuler. Um, and, and no, it doesn't. It needs to just be coming together in fellowship, studying God's word, praying, worshiping the Lord together. That's what God does the bigger and better because the Lord adds to their numbers and the Lord does that kind of thing. What we need to do is just be faithful in committing to those things God told us to do. And then the opportunities come out of that. Kingdom of God is a, there's a debate on this, um, on how Matthew uses the kingdom of heaven uh, Luke and Mark both use the phrase the kingdom of God is at hand. Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. Most believe, or the way I would read this, I think, is that the common language of kingdom is not only Matthew's focus, the kingdom of heaven makes it to, so he doesn't offend the Jews. He's not going to get caught up in word things with the Jews. So when he says the kingdom of heaven, that's far more acceptable to a Jewish uh, audience that doesn't even write the word of God if they don't have to. So they take out the vowels and do Y-H-W-H. So writing kingdom of God and actually writing that in your text would really cause Jewish people to cringe a little bit. So Matthew uses kingdom of heaven. It's a lot more, we don't even notice the difference normally in our language, but the Jews really would have, and it would have been something that made this a lot easier to read for Jewish people in the first century. Uh, and Matthew keeps, he's wise. He keeps the stumbling blocks out of the way for people. So he uses that phrase. Uh, it says the prophet Isaiah. I know I'm spending a lot of time on these first verses. There's so much here. Spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 40, verse 3, if you want the cross-reference. The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God is the full reference that he's making there. He leaves off the last point, but the voice of one crying uh, <clears throat> this goes back to the cities of refuge. If a dignitary is coming into town, what they would do is send the young punk that had some energy and send them running ahead to prepare the way for the king. And that person, that one running out ahead, would have a few different duties in, this, uh, in being the announcer or the person to announce the coming of the king. Um, they would do a few things. One, they would shout as loud as they can, that the king is coming, the king is coming. That's what John the Baptist is doing in the wilderness. Two, if they're going out on the highway and they had any sort of horses or anything like that, if there's stones or branches that fell in the road, they have to clear the way for that. So they get rid of the stuff that's in the way of hearing the king. 
And spiritually speaking, John the Baptist is having them repent and get baptized. Like, get yourself right with God so that when Jesus arrives, you actually hear and recognize Jesus. Make sense? Then the other thing they would do is they'd invite people to come so when the king showed up in town, the whole town was there to welcome him. It was embarrassing for a dignitary to show up and there was nobody there to welcome them. You know, they should come in like, a, like with the Romans, they'd have the whole city come out to welcome uh, higher ranking people in the Roman Empire. So when they prepare the way of the Lord or prepare the way in the wilderness, uh, it, it appears that the wilderness is not a city. It's an odd place to meet your king. But that's, again, God choosing the lowly things of the world to confound the, the, the uh, worldly wisdom of things. So the r- runner is there. The cities of refuge had these run- runners too. Uh, so not just kings got announced in the Old Testament. A murderer that, wa- that thought they were innocent, like an, a manslaughter, accidental murder, would run to a city of refuge, and they had people posted on the road that would run ahead of them so the judges could meet them at the gate. So they had runners between these, on these highways between the cities of refuge. So when Isaiah is mentioning this, he's using that imagery to talk about a Messiah that's going to show up in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. And then Matthew's claim then is John the Baptist was exactly this person and this prophecy got fulfilled precisely. He's not only preparing the way of the Lord, he's actually doing it in the wilderness. And Matthew makes a point of that. Um, the only roads in ancient Israel would have been the roads connecting the cities of refuge. They would have had runners posted on them, and they would have been a place where that would happen. And when the runners weren't like announcing somebody coming to a city, their job was to keep the roads clean and to maintain and, and preserve those roads as, uh, so it was easy to get to the, the refuge that the Lord had prepared. No stumbling blocks. Numbers 35, Deuteronomy 19. Um, Isaiah 57, 14, God says, Rebuild the road, clear away the rocks and stones so my people can return from captivity. Again, just a beautiful image of preparing the way of the Lord is to deal with, recognize, and clean out that kind of sin that might get in the way of us meeting our king. So there's a strong teaching that Matthew has here about purity, using these cities in this image. Uh, this is an area that can't be defiled. So John the Baptist coming out with this claim of repent is that that sin is kind of defiling. Numbers 35, 34, you must not defile the land where you live for I live there myself and I'm the Lord who lives among the people of Israel. So again, an image of just God coming and if you want to, if you want to be ready for that, you need to clear it out. Prepare the way of the Lord. As John prepares for Jesus, he's already calling Jesus Lord. And I think that's interesting because he knows darn well who he's talking about, as we're going to see in a few verses. So this is the first time Jesus gets called Lord by, you know, in, the, in quotations like this in the book of Matthew. Um, Lord here is Jehovah, Yeshua. Um, it is a perfect image of what God's doing. Verse 4, now John himself was clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and his food was locusts and honey. So to a Hebrew, they would know what this means really clearly. Um, This is somebody who basically has walked away from all the comforts of the world in order to dedicate themselves and consecrate themselves to the service of the Lord. This is not necessarily a Nazarite vow, but that's the only place in the Bible where there's anything about diet that's relevant. So there was traditions here that that simplified diet was important. Uh, 2 Kings 1.8 
uh, is one another image here. And they answered him, he was a hairy man and girt with a girdle of leather about his loins. And he said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. So when we say these are the days of Elijah, this is the imagery that the Hebrews would have heard, is that when they're defining John the Baptist as a voice of one crying in the wilderness, straight from Isaiah, and they define what he's wearing, Matthew's trying to argue that this is the spirit of or a reflection of or a shadow of Elijah that has come to prepare the way of the Lord. Um, so a Hebrew would hear that loud and clear. Uh, we should know that John the Baptist wasn't raised in the wilderness. And he was raised by a priest. He would have been coming from a fairly uh, middle-class family. So he had a place to work. Because he's the son of a Levite priest, he would have been the firstborn. He would have been able to be a Levite priest. So he is walking away from those priestly duties to do this other work God's called him to as prophets of old, including Elijah. So... This is, here's the other thing. When Matthew says this in verse 4, there's no indication that this is bad. In fact, it's almost written as a, a badge of honor. And I think for Matthew, a former tax collector, one of the wealthiest people in a society, that you can see the change in Matthew's heart because there's no denigration of John the Baptist at all. Matthew looks at him with honor and writes him that way. So John the Baptist, uh, you know, Grant, you'll like this. He was tough. He was rugged. He was no nonsense. He had a very simple message. Um, there is holiness and there is sin, and this guy's kind of no nonsense about it. Get rid of it. Verse 5, Then Jerusalem, all Judea, and all the region around the Jordan went out to him and were baptized by him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. This means that people have sin. And in Romans, all have fallen short of the glory of God. We all have sin in our life. Um, and they, they would deal with it. So this idea that there is such a thing as sin is one that's being challenged right now uh, in the American church. There is sin. It's real. Um, and uh, never in the Old Testament did God's people voluntarily turn from their sin without massive hardship. So what John the Baptist is doing makes him probably one of the greatest prophets, maybe shy of Jonah, right? Actually, Jesus calls him the greatest of prophets, but what he's getting people to do, like you don't have a king demanding holiness like Hezekiah. You don't have a judge beating up a bunch of Gentiles and then bringing them to holiness. This is actually individuals, heads of household, coming in and getting baptized for their own sin that they feel conscience of. So as that hasn't happened in 3,000 years, you wonder how the Holy Spirit's just working on people's hearts as Jesus is now on earth, the Spirit's just moving. Um, so this is a, a, an entirely significant movement. It's a known movement. In fact, in Josephus, there's more talked about John the Baptist there in the, than there is about Jesus. So John the Baptist had hundreds, if not thousands of people coming out to him in the wilderness. Jesus had a couple moments with thousands of people, but spent most of his time with 12 disciples and didn't have the, the crowds that John constantly had. Uh, John the Baptist is mentioned in Acts 18, Acts 19, uh, so there were still followers of John the Baptist in Acts chapter 18. And they had to kind of like shift over because they were gone the day Jesus was there, apparently. So uh, there's a, a significant call to holiness. And I was thinking of that in, in light of kind of the, the news today. The call of God's people is to holiness, which is a positive, come this direction, versus being against something that's happening in the world. John didn't preach against Rome. 
He got into it with Herod a little later, so he, he took a stand. But he didn't, he didn't preach against Rome. He preached for the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? And I, so just for me, that's such a joyful, like helping me understand how to talk about my faith with people is that I'm drawing people, I'm inviting people to something. I'm not rejecting or standing against something. I'm far more interested in people coming into holiness. It says they were baptized. This is a water baptism. Uh, the word baptismo is to immerse or overwhelm. And when they did it in the Jordan, that means they immersed themselves in water. It is not a sprinkling on the forehead or a dipping of fingers and then some sort of touching with water. It's a full immersion kind of baptism. That's why, uh, that's why we do, when we do baptisms, we, we dip all the way in the water. Um, uh, I don't know how far I want to get into baptism, but um, John's called this because he used it so much. It's fairly unique. In Leviticus 17, 16, it, the priests do not wash their clothes and bathe themselves. They will be punished for their sin. There's some element in Leviticus where again and again and again the priests would cleanse themselves and bathe. But the idea of the average person just bathing or dipping in the water is kind of new for John the Baptist. So it's, so it's both symbol, symbolic, but it's also a clean, an actual cleansing of, of water, especially if people travel to go out to see him. So baptism prior to this was generally for Gentiles coming into the Jewish faith. So when Jewish people are coming to do this, and at Jerusalem, Judea, and the area, uh, this is a statement that the Jewish people are actually recognizing that they're sinful. Again, this is fairly new. Because the Jewish people thought, because we're Jewish, we're God's people, of course we're saved. And the idea of recognizing personal sin, again, when John's doing this and people are responding to it, you see a movement of the Spirit going on here that's kind of unique. Um, so the phrase confessing their sins, in the Greek it actually means while confessing. So they're getting baptized while they're confessing their sins, implying kind of a public announcement of, I'm a sinner and I'm going to confess those things, and John would baptize them as they were doing it. Present tense. So, John's doing something pretty, and I think we can go over those sentences and not recognize how unique this is from the rest of the Old Testament. Average people getting baptized, Jews getting baptized, baptism being something that's full immersion under the water. It's not a bath, it's a symbolic spiritual image of death and resurrection, uh, and it can be done multiple times. It's a public display. So people say, I got baptized once when I was a kid. Can I be baptized again? Part of our tradition in the, the Christian church is, of course you can. Anytime you want to repent of your sins and start walking clean with God, baptism's a way to show that to people. Uh, and you can do that. So if people want to be baptized, John would baptize them. Second Kings chapter 5, uh, Naaman goes to Elisha and he's told to wash himself in the Jordan River Likely the exact same location that John the Baptist is. We know where this spot is. There's a little church there now. If we go to Israel, I want to go to this spot. Uh, there's a little curve in the river right here. And, and John the Baptist kind of could hang out there and he could have people being baptized all around that curve. Um, but this is the same spot where the leprosy was washed away in 2 Kings. He washed seven times when he did it. And then Elisha says, go in peace after he did it. So part of this washing is not only physical, but it's also a spiritual washing because he didn't go in health, he went in peace. There's a spiritual peace that comes over people when they're cleansed. 
So Matthew presents this to a Hebrew audience that would know the story of Naaman, that would know the cleansing rituals for priests, and that would know all these elements of the Old Testament. When John the Baptist does this, in just that one sentence, we get it all put together. Uh, Matthew or Malachi 4, verse 5, at the very end of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And Matthew's making the case that this is exactly what John the Baptist was. He is that guy. So the next line starts with but in verse 7. So John was doing a good thing. The people were turning to God, but. Now here's the, here's the introduction of the other side of the narrative in the rest of the book of Matthew. But <clears throat> when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, that's not a nice thing to say to people. You, you, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Okay, so John the Baptist, being the son of a priest, probably knew a bunch of these people because these are the folks close enough to come out and visit. So I want to know, like, there had to be backstory there. Like, John had to have had some run-ins with these Pharisees and Sadducees before he said, I'm just going to go out in the wilderness and call people to holiness, right? So I just love that idea that, this doesn't come in a vacuum. There was stuff there, but Matthew doesn't share what it is, so we won't conjecture. Verse 8, Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not think to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God's able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Indeed, I baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand. He will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. This is a hardcore sermon. He says this in public with everybody there to hear. Pharisees, Sadducees, the whole crew. So Matthew introduces the critics of Jesus in his, in his book. So here are the critics. The Pharisees arise out of a desperate attempt to control the Jewish people. Because after they got back from Babylon, because they were sent to Babylon in sin, now they're back in the promised land. They're doing everything they can do to keep people from sinning. And this is the large narrative of the Old Testament is how this comes to be. Um, but they don't want to be exiled from the promised land again. So every little village in town has a Pharisee, a Pharisee group of people that are making sure that nobody sins, and, and they come up with their own rules. They compound on top of the Old Testament law to just keep people like a buffer zone away from... You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. They made it so that even spitting on the ground could be a way to plant seeds. So even spitting on the ground became outlawed under the Pharisees' law. It's not an Old Testament law, but it's a law that they just kind of made up to create a buffer zone around sin. So their thought is a highly works-based theology, um, and they've been largely successful. Like, to speak for the Pharisees, there has been no false idol worship or paganism in Israel since they came back from Babylon. So as a group, they have done that, but they've done it through a heavy-handed control of people, um, and they believe that their works will save them. Um, so they, they uh, are known for being fairly harsh and mean people. Or what we have today is the stereotype of the uh, nun school marm in a Catholic school with a ruler in her hand. They were those kind of people. The Sadducees 
were often in conflict with the Pharisees. So the fact that John groups them together is kind of interesting because they're often at each other's throats. The Sadducees were the high priests in the temple, and they were the authority through the temple structure system. They were the very, very wealthy, very, very powerful people that ran Judaism from the official sense or from the temple. They had partnered with the Romans. The Romans let them continue to exist as long as they don't do anything against Roman law or Roman rule. So the, in that sense, the, the Sadducees are secularists. They don't believe in any miracles in the Old Testament. So we have those people today that don't believe the Bible is you know, an actual historical accounting. Sadducees were already there, right? No miracles, no spirit. Uh, there's just you and, and God isn't involved in our day-to-day lives. He created the world, then he walked away. And so you're on your own. The Sadducees were known for their corruption. They lined their pockets. They got filthy rich. Um, and because of this, the Pharisees would, were quick to accuse them of their corruption. And the Sadducees were quick to call the Pharisees just a, a group of holier-than-thou holy rollers. So the legalists and the secularists both show up at John's baptism. He calls them a brood of vipers. A brood of vipers is a set of vipers that have winterized. And they winterize by coiling around each other into a little ball. Have I told my snake story before? Okay, so my grandpa and grandma had me digging fence post holes when I was like 10, 11 years old. So I'm in the backyard and I just stick a spade into the ground. And, I'm, and I, by the way, I'm working in my sandals, right? Because I'm a kid and I do these things. So I'm digging the hole and I get down about a foot and a half and I put the spade in and I pull it up. But by that time, I'm in such an automatic, you know, just dig, get through it mode that I bring the thing up and I turn the shovel to dump the dirt off to the side. And I notice as I'm dumping the shovel, it wasn't dirt at all. It was a ball about this big of garter snakes that had gone down underground into a brood and coiling in on one another. In other words, the Pharisees and the Sadducees are all, they're the same thing. Neither one of them have faith in God and are living the kind of faithful life that God asked them to live. So, and by the way, then the snakes stayed in their little ball for like a half a second. And then everything went into slow motion as the ball dissolved into the long grass and they started going over my feet in all these directions. So I took the shovel and I just started hacking. And as a 10-year-old, I was terrified. So I start crying too and I'm just bawling, screaming and hacking the ground. And I'm yelling and my grandparents come out of the house and they're like, what's going on? And I'm just and doing that sort of thing. And by the time they get there and they cool me down, there's about a four foot area around me that I dug up all the grass and little chunks of blood and snake everywhere. Um, it It was a horrible moment in my life. And then I saw the Indiana Jones in the Raiders of the Lost Ark, and I about lost it when I saw the snake pit. Uh, it really, really wrecked with my head. The brood of vipers, uh, uh, viper has, has a connotation of even a poisonous snake, not just little garter snakes, but ones that actually kill. And I think when John's saying that, I think he, he'd been sitting around at night trying to think of the right metaphor for these people because he dealt with them his whole life. And he realized that not only were they not helping the Jewish people, they were poisoning a faith in God. And, and the holiness comes through repentance and seeking God, not through the workspace theology or the secularism of the Sadducees. They were poisoning the temple and they were poisoning the church. And 
Therefore, verse 8, bear fruits worthy of repentance. He doesn't say they're doomed to hell. He's saying do things that are actually representing repentance, calling them sinners. Because if they need to repent, he's calling them a sinner. This is why his head ends up on a tray. Like John the Baptist is saying things that would be highly offensive to people. Uh, Paul even said, like, I grew up in this way. Remember when he's bragging about how he, he was raised as a, a Levite and, and, and the highest of standards and he had no, he hadn't done anything. Even in his Christianity, Paul recognized that way of thinking was wrong. But that way of thinking was, I've done nothing wrong. And it's in the flesh, I think it's, it's, it's a tough place to be. The out, when we talk about fruits, the outcome of our life is the fruits of the Spirit and what comes out. So when you look around at what's going on in your life, the fruit is the, the relationships. When they cry for help, Proverbs one twenty eight, I won't answer. Though they anxiously search for me, they won't find me. For they hated knowledge and chose not to fear the Lord. They rejected my advice and paid no attention when I corrected them. Therefore, they must eat the bitter fruit of living their own way, choking on their own schemes. This is one of the only references to fruit in the Old Testament. So when John says this, bear the fruit of repentance, those Pharisees would likely have this kind of thing readily available in their brain. He knew, they knew exactly what he was saying to them. You guys are going to be tossed out. And then the story with the, the, the root, the axe laying to the root of the tree, the imagery here is strong and in their face. He says, don't say we have Abraham as their father. That goes back to what I was talking about. They believed that if they were Jews, they were saved just by how they were born. But being born in a family that's a family of faith doesn't mean that you're right with God. You still have to do it. Throughout the Old Testament, Gentiles are loved and adopted, a la the Book of Ruth, um, where Saul, the king, who's a chosen king of the Jews, is rejected. So John's bringing them back to an understanding of the Old Testament. Like, look, there's Gentiles that got saved and there's Jews that got lost. And that, how you're born doesn't mean anything. It says God's able to raise up children. God does exactly this. In fact, he raised Adam and Eve from the dust. He can raise his own people. He doesn't need us. He invites us. And there's a huge difference between the two. If God wants to do his work on earth, he doesn't need us to do his work on earth but he invites us to do that in partnership with him. And that's a beautiful thing when it happens. So God is never desperate for humans to do anything, but he invites us into a loving relationship with us, with him where he can use us to do things. And that's to our benefit, not out of God's need. A sense of entitlement in the kingdom of God is what the Pharisees and Sadducees, that is the poison. That idea that somehow I'm needed, I'm better than, I'm more important than somebody. Uh, that idea is something that is, should have the axe laid to the root of the tree, and it should be chopped down. So God's about to chop down a whole system of bitter fruit from the Pharisees and Sadducees, and out of the root of that is going to come a new Nazar, Nazarite, new sprout, that's going to come out of those roots that are still in the right place. So God's going to wrap up the Old Testament construct of anticipating Messiah when the Messiah actually shows up. The idea of having things thrown into the fire, <laughs> it, you know, John the Baptist doesn't hold back any punches. Like, this is, this is not an easy message to hear, that you could be someone seeking God with your whole life, 
but you don't bear good fruit and God's going to throw you out. And that's a terrifying thought. It can lead some people into a pharisaical works-based theology. It can lead some people into a secular, I don't even care, I'm not even going to try attitude, but it should, it should motivate us to bear good fruit, which is the harder, more narrow path between the two. Um, Trees with good fruit are propped up. It takes years for a tree to bear actual fruit in the real world. And oftentimes those trees have to be carefully cultivated, cared for, pruned in order for them to bear fruit at some point. So there is a season of growth that happens prior to that fruit. And that's the other thing is Christians shouldn't be ashamed if they don't see that fruit as long as they're growing towards Christ in their life. That fruit's going to come. So it's clearly a metaphor for a spiritual life um, and those good fruits that we have, things like grace, love, encouragement, helps, teaching, peace, assurance. I think when we look around the room and we think, how can I make that person be more encouraged than when they walk in the door? That's the kind of fruits we offer in fellowship in the church. And it, it's not just the person teaching the scripture that does that work. It is the whole fellowship that does that work. We do it one to another. Verse 11, John says, I indeed baptize you with water under repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John's human baptism is just a symbol. We just, when we do water baptism, that's just a symbol. And John's making that point that this whole water baptism thing, it's just a way of showing people that you're now committed to the Lord. But what you're really looking for is the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which we seem to be keep coming back to that topic again and again and again. Uh, what you're really looking for is the Lord to baptize you in a real way with the Holy Spirit that changes your heart and your life and empowers you to do the ministry that he's got for you to do. So John recognizes that. He's naming two different kinds of baptism here. So as Christians, that doesn't often get taught. I wasn't taught that. I spent 30 years in a church and never heard that. But there it is, right there. There's clearly two baptisms. One is something humans do, and another is something God does. And they don't necessarily happen at the same time. So that theology is a tough one, I think, sometimes, especially if you haven't been taught in that school. Uh, but if we take the word at face value, John seems to understand it differently than I did for a large part of my life. Um, the baptism then is just the start. It's, you do this public display, but it's the beginning of your life with Christ, as it is with Jesus. He's been around for 30 years, but his public ministry is going to start after his baptism. It is the initiation of something or the beginning of something, not the culmination of something. Um, so this is a major idea in the early church, and it's very distinct from Judaism. John the Baptist is not only closing the Old Testament, but he's beginning a new covenant, New Testament. Uh, and here's how it's different from Judaism. I'm going to go to Romans 6, verse 3. Um, and in, in Romans 6, verse 3, he says, Don't you know, like, as a Christian, we all know this. You should all know this. That so many of us were baptized into Jesus Christ, were baptized unto his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ, we are raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father. Even so, we should walk in the newness of life. Going under the water is a symbol of our death. We die to ourselves. We come back up out of the water. It's a new life in Christ. And I, I think sometimes we take baptism for granted because we've grown up in a Christian culture, in a Christian world, where we just know that. But to know how distinct that belief system and how quickly Christians adopted that as a symbol, 
um, it became a very important part of Christianity. And what the odd thing is, it's one of the things the enemy goes after. Look at all the denominations and all the differences between how they treat baptism. Why is that an area of such difference amongst the different groups of people in the church? And part of it is, I think the enemy wants that to be watered down. You're welcome, Grant. Um, but it's a really simple thing. It's an image of death and a new walk in Christ. You just picked that one up. I like how John humbles himself. I'm not worthy. <laughs> I am not worthy. How many times have we prayed and we look to God and just say, I'm not worthy, Lord. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how I'm doing it. I need you to help me get through this. Um, oftentimes, we can pray that even with an individual conversation when we meet somebody new in the elevator or we're in, we're in line at Target or something and you're just like, Lord, give me the words to say. I want your spirit to, to do what it needs to do. Uh, sandal care was generally left to slaves, not disciples. Uh, servants, not your students. So when John says, I'm not even worthy of dealing with your sandals, he's lowering himself to beneath a student or beneath a, a learner. Uh, it is something that, that slaves and the lowest uh, person in the household would deal with the footwear. Because the footwear not only had dirt, but it had foot diseases. So it was nastiness, and you didn't really want to mess with people's feet. Uh, also, this idea of I'm not worthy to deal with your footwear is a wonderful foreshadowing of what ja Jesus is going to do with his disciples later on. He's going to lower himself to that position. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Here's what's interesting. Fire in the Bible is either really, really good or really, really bad. Fire purifies. It gets rid of the, the flack. It gets rid of impurities, and it takes something, when, we, when God puts his people through the fire, it's to refine them into something beautiful. And then there's fire for the sinner, where they are the flack, they are the impurity. And for, for someone with impurity, the fire is a very dangerous thing, and you don't want to be anywhere near it. So if you're not baptized into the kingdom, you don't want the baptism of fire because it can actually destroy. But for those seeking the Lord in holiness, you actually want to get rid of the different parts of yourself that are sinful. And that baptism of Holy Spirit and fire helps you get rid of this. There are some denominations that completely skip this idea. They just don't talk about it. They don't read it. They don't do these verses. Um, because it's something that, that can be a really tough idea to come to terms with that God can actually burn and, 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 and get people off. So we don't really see this happen until the book of Acts. So Jesus' ministry is going to happen, and I want to flash forward, uh, because in the book of Acts, when the Pentecost happens, they are baptized with the Holy Spirit. They knew Jesus. They believed in Jesus. He's risen from the dead. He taught them, and he said, I want you to wait here until the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and they do exactly that. So the baptism of the Holy Spirit has nothing to do with knowing and believing in Jesus Christ, which is our salvation. It has to do with doing the work that God set us out to do. So that God empowers his people at various times when they are on the front lines getting ready to do his work. Um, and uh, so his disciples are there. That happens in the book of Acts. Ezekiel 37, 14, And I shall put my spirit in you, and you shall live. And I shall place, in your, I shall place you in your own land, and then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it, performed it, so says the Lord. So God promises to put his Holy Spirit in us, and not just upon us, but in us. 
uh, and there is power in this, and there's more power in the walk. Maybe afterwards we can get done and kind of share stories for those of us that um, have had this happen in ministry, and we've felt that there. But God puts a new spirit in us. Again, a, a challenging theological concept, all getting laid out here in Matthew chapter 3. Verse 12, it goes back. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, and he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So in case we didn't get that message the first time, John kind of rephrases it in an even more vivid image. Again, in the first century, a winnowing fork was like a big, huge pit fork, and you could pick up whole piles of wheat, and then you'd throw it in the air. And wheat being heavier than the, the casing around it, which would catch the wind, on a windy day, the chaff would just get blown away and what would land on your threshing floor was the wheat. And then you could bring it into your barn and pound it out and make some flour with it. Um, the idea of chaff that then fell to the floor or you had to sort it out is you just throw it in the fire and let it feed the fire. So you would you separate the things out. This is, gets to like the idea that God will plant a field and there will be both good plants and tares or bad plants that grow up in that field. And that part of the harvest is separating out the good plants from the bad plants. So you look at the planet Earth and you got people raising up all over the Earth and God's looking at that, all the humanity on this Earth and there's people he's going to bring into his barn and there's people that he's going to destroy. So that message is, again, not a popular one these days, but it's there it is with John. He hits it right on the nose. They, then... Ephesians 4.14, then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching, giving, you know, connecting with this image of John, that the chaff. We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they actually sound like the truth. The whole idea is that God is not just cruel, but he's merciful in that he will sort. Because God could just destroy all of humanity if he wanted to. He doesn't have to spend eternity with us. He's God. And he's complete in and of himself. He doesn't need to do any of this, but he does in his grace and his mercy. One temptation from the non-believer is to look at sentences like verse 12 and think of a cruel God that's harsh. And if you're living in sin, that's a logical conclusion from that verse. But if you're honestly with your whole heart, mind, and soul trying to seek out the Lord God Almighty and you know that about yourself, this isn't a terrifying verse. This means you don't have to spend all eternity with a bunch of corrupt people that don't love God. Like he's going to do some sorting and praise God he does sorting instead of just wrecking it all and cleaning house and starting over. So that idea of purification and unquenchable fire... Um, <laughs> That's what happens. Burns up the chaff with an unquenchable fire. So to sum it up, there are axes going to trees, there are forks, there are snakes, and there are fires. John mixes together a ton of imagery around sin. And he doesn't seem to like sin very much. Like he wants, he, he calls people to repent from all of that. And I think he's also calling these Pharisees and Sadducees, like, get on the right side of this thing, you people. And there are some Pharisees and there are some Sadducees that do become Christians later on. So there are some folks that are maybe touched by what he says in some way, but not all of them. Um, God isn't about to sully his holiness with our sin. He's not going to do it. If he's a perfect and a good and just God, why would he give that up? 
Like at some level, there has to be something that covers our sin for us to spend eternity with God. So again, you get three groups. Those that repent, those that don't, those that pretend and fake it. The judgment of God's real and the fakers and the don'ts are going to have the same outcome in, in John's message. Um, the Jewish people thought Messiah would come with judgment in the first place. John seems to preach that kind of message. When Messiah shows up, judgment's happening. Um, and Jesus came out with, with, uh, with two, two arrivals on earth. The first would be to come with a new path to walk, and the second will come with judgment. So everything John's saying about judgment is true. It's just not true on, John, on Jesus' first coming. God's going to make all things new. And Matthew's point again is there's a new kingdom that's going to form. That kingdom will have its era on earth as it has. So then John baptizes Jesus. Then Jesus, verse 13, came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I got to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me? Again, John knew Jesus, and there's history with the two of them. And, and John understands his place. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then he allowed him. So Jesus came, means Jesus came forward publicly. He didn't come out of obligation or because somebody said he had to. Um, to be baptized by John, uh, God, I think, regards the role in the system that he set up. And Jesus, as God, submits himself to the system, not because Jesus has sin he has to get rid of. This is a symbolic act. But because Jesus is going to submit to the system that God told all his people to submit to. And repentance uh, unto holiness is something that's called for throughout the whole Old Testament, which is what John's preaching. So when Jesus does this, again, the point of baptism is a public display that you're going to start your ministry. For Jesus, it's no different. Getting baptism doesn't erase sin, which Jesus didn't even have. The point of baptism, reinforced with Jesus, is to announce to the world that he's starting a public ministry. So Jesus is going to do that. John's saying, why are you coming to me? Obviously, John knows where he's at. In, in this idea that it is fitting for us to fulfill, God create, created a system and a path that it is fulfilling and good to go through, even if you're not a sinner. right? But we all are sinners, so we should still go through it. John knows that God gives the Spirit and that his baptism is just water because he's already said it in this chapter. So he, already, he understands what's going on with it. But Jesus associates himself with sinners throughout his life. In his birth, he associates with sinners because he's born a human. He associates, he, he associates with the Nazarites and the Nazarenes, probably the least appreciated area and village in the country. He associates himself with carpentry and becomes a carpenter under his dad. He associates himself with humanity and death on the cross and takes uh, the death of a criminal and associates with people. It doesn't mean that Jesus had sin, which is a horrible heresy. It means that he's associating with sinners and he's becoming like us so that he can show us a path to fulfill all righteousness. Uh, so fulfilling all righteousness is not all the Gospels. Then God says these wonderful lines. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus obeys the calling of God. Jesus is fully human, fully God. He still makes decisions just like humans do. And God's seeing that over the last 30 years, 
he's made the right decision. The Spirit alights upon him. God speaks. Jesus obeys. The Trinity's complete. The only other place we see the Trinity come together this tight is in Genesis 1, making the beginning of the Old Testament. And when Matthew paints this picture, it's like the beginning of the New Testament. The Holy Spirit showed up at the creation of the world, shows up at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in the three-in-one kind of form. Just really, the symmetry of it's amazing. It doesn't just say my son, it says my beloved son, showing that even within the Trinity, what ties the Trinity together is love. God actually loves himself, and that is part of the relationship of God in his different manifestations, is that there is a love that is internal in God, and there's a love that he has for humanity that comes out of God. Um, some people think Jesus changed at this moment, and there's... and I. I I say some people because these are not commentators I respect. Jesus doesn't change here. There's nothing in the text that says Jesus changes. In fact, John's recognition of him as Lord happens at the beginning of the chapter, well before the baptism. John's knowledge of Jesus and who he is is instantly recognized when he reacts to Jesus showing up for a baptism. So Jesus doesn't change here, but he does announce himself to the world, which makes you wonder what's in chapter 4. Like, what's the next thing Jesus does to start his ministry and to establish a new kingdom on earth? So all we have now is that there is a king that was born, raised and anointed by wise foreign kings. Now we have an announcement that the kingdom of God is at hand. Now it's not just at hand, it's here. And that beginning starting point, it looks a lot like the creation of the world. There's a creation of a new kingdom that just came up out of the water. Jesus coming up immediately, again, that's a confounding word for me. But it has, I think maybe uh, the idea is that the kingdom of God just came upon the earth in an instant, just like the creation of the world was created just in a word, in a thought. And when Jesus comes up immediately, it's like boom, and the Holy Spirit comes down and the voice happens all at the same time. And for John the Baptist, of course, he's like, oh, like it's all starting, it begins. And you get this moment in the kingdom that's amazing. Jesus doesn't have any disciples yet, so God starts the kingdom of God without the help of any human other than maybe John the Baptist, who says, I want to do this just to, I want to do it the right way. I wonder if Jesus, the human, knew that this was going to be what happened when he came up out of the water. And maybe that anticipation is where the word immediately came from. Like, he couldn't wait. Like, it's going to start, and I'm here. Um, you also wonder, like, who else is watching this happen besides John the Baptist? And who are those people? Maybe Philip was here as a follower of John the Baptist. Maybe Philip saw this happen. Um, so you don't know, like, who's in the room at the time, there's a strong implication that there might have been some Pharisees and Sadducees hanging out when this happened. Um, but it doesn't say who was there exactly, so there's just curious as there. Either way, the kingdom of God has started. We come back next week in Matthew 4, we're going to see Jesus establish a new kingdom. And he's going to start to gather people into that kingdom. So let's pray. Uh, dear Lord and King, we... Lord, we want to start the way you started. Um, and that is, Lord, we want to look at our own lives and the things in our life that are holding us back, the stumbling blocks. And Lord, as we want to walk in your kingdom and be in your kingdom, uh, reveal any wicked ways in us. Reveal anything in us, Lord, that doesn't put our lives in your hands. Uh, we want the way to be clear, Lord, because we want to serve you. Lord, we know that there is punishment. It's real. 
uh, that there is that there that you do want to gather unto yourself those that pursue you and, and want to be holy. So help us to do that, Lord. Help change our hearts uh, that we don't come in and, and look at Matthew 3 this morning, Lord, and not let it touch our hearts and our souls. May we not presume or assume that we're on good terms just because of our where we were born and who our parents are and where we come from and what we've done because it has nothing to do with what we've done. It has everything to do with a loving relationship with you. So Lord, help us to find you and serve you and bow before you. Uh, Lord, there's nothing that we have that we, we don't want to give to you. So Lord, may you have our whole life, not just part of it, not pieces of it, but all of it. Lord, you can have it and burn away anything that's holding us back from that kind of a walk with you and that kind of life. Lord, I pray for the this body, is, is each soul that's with us right now, Lord, help us to give ourselves to you, that we have nothing that isn't yours. Lord, our jobs, our relationships, our family, they're all yours, and there's no accidents. Help us to have great courage that we know who our God is, and therefore we know where we stand and who we are. Help us to not confuse what righteousness looks like, but to do it based on your word, and not the word of Pharisees or Sadducees that are so prevalent in our society right now. Lord, help us to seek you. Lord, we know the primary message of John was to repent. So Lord, if there's anyone in this room, including me, Lord, where there's something we need to repent of, stir our hearts to it so we can get rid of it and we can throw it out. Lord, it's better to go into the kingdom with one less eye or one less hand or anything spiritually, Lord, that holds us back from you. It's better to lose it and come into the kingdom without so, Lord, help us to repent. Help us to know that your kingdom is not only at hand, it's here. Lord, it's in this room, and where two or three are gathered in your name, you're here. Your Holy Spirit's with us and upon us. Lord, we want to go forward this week and each day and each hour count the opportunities we have to, to share the gospel and minister uh, one to another, Lord. Bless us in those things. Bless lunch. And, Lord, we pray for Danny's place as we go over there this afternoon. Uh, Lord, may we just uh, um, bless her new home and um, pray over it. And may that just be a wonderful time too. Uh, be with us and keep us in Jesus' name. Amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.